0: You are listening to the Blockchain Dialogues Podcast. All views expressed on this show are for educational purposes only and not meant to be taken as financial advice.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Blockchain Dialogues Podcast with your hosts, Krishna and Nikhil. In this podcast series, we analyze various cutting-edge technologies and projects in the field of blockchains DLTs, and cryptocurrencies. In today's episode, we are joined by Jacob Willaby, who is the CTO for Storage, which is a blockchain-based, decentralized cloud storage solution. With that, Jacob, welcome to the show from both Nikhil and myself. Hi, Uh, glad to be here. I'm sorry I missed asking you this before starting the recording, but what's the best pronunciation of the company's name? Uh, is it
0: storage or storage or storage? Uh, that that might be an interesting thing to cover on the podcast too. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, storage, is is how it's pronounced, uh, and if you're uh, a lot of people in Europe like to say store J, um, and so the official answer is it's storage. Uh, but especially in conversations when you're talking about cloud storage and where you're storing data. It gets kind of a mouthful to say storage, is storing your data in the cloud uh, storage. Um, you don't know what's going on. So it, sometimes it's helpful to just say storage in those contexts.
1: Okay, perfect. So yeah, I mean, just to start off, Jacob, uh, to learn a little bit about you. I believe, you know, prior to 2022, I, th- I think that's when you joined Storage. And uh, before that, you were working with a company called Crowd Storage, which eventually got acquired by Storage. Before that, you know, you've been a software engineer for about 10 years, you know, working for multiple companies. So could you walk us through your journey a little bit?
0: Yeah, so my, my own personal journey um, in software engineering uh, I, and my journey in distributed storage in particular started uh, when I got hired at Space Monkey. Uh, and Space Monkey was a company that got acquired by Vivint Smart Home. Uh, and they were building a, uh, think of it as a NAS device that had distributed storage technology built into it. So their, their pitch at the time was you, you buy a two-terabyte drive and you get one terabyte for yourself, and then the other terabyte is for a backup to this distributed network. So they built basically a peer-to-peer distributed network of, of NAS devices and in, connected into there. Um, And that's actually when I first, uh, I was hired by J.T. Olio, uh, who now works at at Storage um, and is my peer here. Uh, And so that's when I first met him and started my distributed uh, storage journey.
1: Perfect. Thanks for sharing your story with us, Jacob. So uh, to quickly move on to the company that you are with today, that is Storage. Uh, I think I heard in one of the interviews of your CEO describing Storage as the Uber for data storage. So uh, could you give us a quick overview of what is storage uh, as a protocol, as a company, uh, how it began and uh, you know, how it has evolved over the last years?
0: Yeah, so um, storage is uh, an Uber of, of storage is a good way to look at it. As some people like to say the Airbnb, where we take excess capacity around the globe and are able to leverage that excess capacity and combine it together and to create a single um, data center, essentially, without needing a data center uh, to, to bring all that capacity together. Um, so the, the, the key observation that it was founded under is, you know, most of the storage space around the globe, storage and bandwidth, is underutilized. Uh, people who buy drives generally buy them for capacities larger than they need. Um, and they usually are only around 20 to 30 percent full. At any given time, so being able to tap into this latent storage capacity around the globe was a it was is, is was the idea, and that's what the company set out to do and build uh, over time. And uh, when Storage was founded, we knew th- that, uh, and I say we, I, I'm speaking par- uh, in in past tense for others at Storage. Uh, the the goal was to be a something that could beat or replace AWS S3, something that was professional and enterprise grade as well. Uh, There's a lot of other goals and and objectives, especially in the blockchain space uh, around what they're trying to accomplish. And we knew that we wanted to be as performant um, and able to be a drop-in replacement for S3. So uh, storage started back in 2014, Um, the, the founder in his dorm room at Morehouse College I came up with the idea um, and uh, was able to build a prototype, um, you know, and over the years in 2015, 2017, um, they built a a V2 version of the network um, that scaled to uh, around 100 to 150 petabytes. So starting in about 2017, 2018, a lot of the current leadership joined. uh, John Gleason, who is the CEO, Ben Golub, who is the CEO, came over. Uh, he used to be the CEO of Docker. Uh, JT Olio, which I already mentioned, came over from uh, Vivent. Uh, joined the company in 2018. And they, they took a look at the things in the V2 network that needed to be approved um, and launched what is now the V3 white paper um, and the, v, v, the version 3 development started uh, that wanted to hit a lot more goals that I mentioned earlier about the network. Um, so 2019, I think, is when the V3 public beta hit um, and hit hit the gates that they wanted for performance, durability, and availability. And then 2020 is when the V3 networks launched and it went general availability. And I believe uh, probably about the April 2021 timeframe is when uh, DCS launched and our S3 compatible gateway which you can kind of think of as kind of a web 2.5 is an easier way for customers to onboard and use the decentralized storage. Um, and so th- this uh, brings us up to 2022, 2023, uh, where we have accelerating growth, uh, increased product market fit and key use cases, um, You know, customers with more than a petabyte um, uh, of storage and egress. Um, and then 2022 is of course, uh, we, we didn't talk much about crowd storage in my history there, but that is the the cloud storage acquisition where Colby Weininger, myself, um, and and four others came over um, to storage, um, and so it's really we're in a moment now where we're just seeing increased adoption and support and being able to scale around the globe.
1: Thank you for going over the and the, the the story of storage. Uh, if I could say that you know over the last few years, uh, but just just to kind of take a step back and maybe expand a little bit on, you know, the business use case of uh, decentralized storage as a whole, right? So uh, could you actually go into how decentralized storage is today in comparison with centralized services, Uh, like in terms of pricing, performance, you know, where are we today, right now? And and who is really the target audience uh, for decentralized storage? Is it like customers like me, you know, who's probably running... A laptop, maybe who has like uh, one terabyte of space uh, that is available unutilized or is it a small company that's running its own server? So who is the ideal customer for storage?
0: Yeah, so I think, I think there's a lot of things that you asked there. So that's, let's try to un, un, unpack them one at a time. Um, so let's just talk a little bit about the case for decentralized storage. Um, so I, there are... The the existing centralized cloud has a number of problems. Uh, the the first problem is uh, is your data um, is all stored within a data center, uh, and you're like, wait, that's a problem. He's like, yeah. So the implications of that is number one, cost. Uh, data centers are you know multi million dollar, if not billion dollar projects that are planned years in advance. Uh, they're 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 huge facilities that require massive amounts of power. Uh, they're often co-located near places that have cheap uh, and inexpensive power, and that inexpensive power usually isn't the cleanest and best for the environment either. Um, and uh, because your data is all in that facility, uh, these these cl- the the cloud providers and st- traditional storage providers uh, don't they they have access to your data as well. Uh, all of the data is stored there. Uh, they have 14 years of history where they, they've been building a system that kind of relies on them having access to your data and being able to use it. Even though the data is encrypted, uh, in in most cases, uh, S3 didn't actually encrypt by default until just this year, I think, or last year, as very recently, uh, that your data was actually sitting on those drives in the data center unencrypted. Um, and so any employee with access to that could have pulled a drive at, at any point and and just looked at your data. Um, and, and that's really one of the big problems of centralized cloud is, is yeah, you're not, you're, you're just storing your data on somebody else's computer. Um, is that really better than storing it on your own computer? Um, and so uh, there's a privacy concern there. Um, the centralized cloud also is a, is kind of a single, single point of failure. Um, and in order to reduce the chance of that single point point of failure, it's, 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 it's quite expensive. Um, and or it reduces the performance benefits as well. Uh, so when you right now go and want to download something from Google Photos or uh, from S3 or one of those things, you traverse the internet over a series of 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 routers uh, to get to your endpoint. You retrieve those files from that say you know you in, in Virginia in the East Coast of the United States, and then it traverses the internet all the way back to your your client that you're downloading it from. So if your client happens to be in Australia, you're, you're tra- traversing the specific, you know, uh, ocean cables underneath the, uh, the ocean, you have to traverse over lots of networks to get there. And if at any point there's packet loss, or uh, at any point those networks become congested, suddenly your download is extremely slow. Uh, and so to fix this, the cloud providers, of course, have given you an option which costs two to three times as much money, which is to replicate your data uh, to multiple of their facilities, um, which of course just adds multiples and multiples to the cost. Um, And to give you an idea of the cost difference, uh, we we generally like like to tell people they can save up to 80% on their uh, S3 bill if they use storage. And and so that that roughly translates into take your S3 bill, um, take your uh, cloud storage bill, and take a zero off of it. And that's generally what the cost savings that you'll be able to see with storage and decentralized storage. Um, And so just imagine multiplying that by multiples um, with decentralized storage, you don't have that problem as well. So there's privacy, there's cost, and there's performance uh, are kind of the three disadvantages of of centralized cloud. Now decentralized cloud uh, solves these problems in unique ways. And in storage is one example of decentralized uh, storage. Uh, and so I'll just use that as my primary use case. So when we we're building storage, uh, we had to solve the privacy problem first because you're, you're right uh, when you're asking about potential use cases, uh, who are we targeting? Well, uh, really it's, it's anybody, prosumer and on, on up uh, in, in data centers as well can supply capacity to the storage network. So the first thing that we had to solve was the privacy problem of how do you store data securely on other people's computers? Um, And not only store it in a way that they can't see it, uh, which is the first step in our uh, upload flow is to encrypt it, Uh, but you also need to store it in a way that you know that it's durable and it's going to be available and and be retrievable for when you want it. And so those are the other key uh, problems that storage has solved in a unique way in the market, is being able to encrypt that data, er erase your encode it, Uh, which is a process by which we split it into, say, 100 pieces, but only a subset of those, say 20, need to be retrieved in order to get your content back. And so that simultaneously solves the durability problem, whereas we're able to have these 100 pieces stored around the globe. It doesn't affect our cost problem because we're not replicating the data. We're simply using uh, erasure codes to get the better durability than replication would give you. Uh, while at the same time requiring us to store less data. And it also solves the performance problem uh, because we're able to build the system in a way that you can just use the nodes that are fastest to get your data back. So on the download side and on the upload side, we over uh, connect to nodes and then we use the fastest ones in order to get your data transfer back. And so what that actually does is we are able to have better performance than Amazon S3. Now, now take, a, take a step back and consider that for a minute. Amazon has been around for, is it, is it 15 years now? Um, and storage, which has been around and our V3 network has been around since much less than that, you know, five, four or five years. We're able to confidently say for, for a variety of use cases, we are able to beat and exceed the performance of Amazon S3. We exceed their durability. And we are at much lower price point. Um, so those are kind of the, the case for decentralized storage, I believe, um, is, is how we solve all of those key challenges.
2: Right. Uh, so uh, that was a, a great pitch, Jacob. Uh, and uh, just wanted to kind of uh, look at a few of the uh, points that you had raised, right? So one is obviously uh where the 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 claim against amazon the fact that okay replication is the way they suggest you spread your data around and uh, they'll they'll say okay replicate your we'll replicate your data across multiple data centers for availability and uh, uh, they'll charge you extra for it but there's also another way of doing it, right uh I mean you look we are looking if you're comparing yourself to Amazon, okay, but there's also uh, CDNs, right content delivery networks, which also are distributed storage solutions uh, that kind of uh, are optimized for that particular use case. And in fact, if you look at most modern web development, most static assets are usually kept on a content delivery network and they're usually set up so that you have multiple version, uh, copies of things closer to, where the audience is uh so uh from the perspective of yeah if you're competing against amazon only on s3 maybe yeah that's 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 a compelling thing but has there been uh, any questions or have you ever looked at yourself as a competitor to a cdn
0: yeah, so that's that a fantastic thing to bring up and look at because CDN has the distribution aspect to it as well. Uh-huh. So there's a number of things uh, that CDNs do poorly today. Um, so one of the things that CDNs do pretty poorly is when you have content that isn't readily cacheable. Um, and it could be not be readily cacheable for a number of reasons. Uh, the first reason is you don't access the data very frequently. Um, And so CDNs have a limited number uh, amount of fast performance storage at the edge Uh uh, on their SSDs or MVMEs. And so uh, if your content isn't accessed very frequently, then you're going back to your origin storage, which is often S3 to go and get your content. And so that that cold fetch, if you will, uh, is limited by the performance of where you're storing your content. And again, Amazon's story here is, well, if you want that faster, You need to store three copies of of your data in S3 in order to have that origin fetch be fast and have global performance. Um, So the other thing that CDNs are poor at is large file caching, and especially when its offset reads into those large files. So say you have ISOs you want to distribute of your software for updates or large movie files that you need to distribute or send around the globe. Uh, those are also things that aren't very, don't work very well in CDNs. Uh, some some CDNs even have limitations uh, as to the size of files that they'll cache and do that. Um, so those are just some of the things that uh, you have to consider. Now, obviously, if your if your content is is relatively small um, and is accessed relatively frequently, CDNs work fantastic. Um, and uh, I think in those use cases. Uh, storage can simply be your origin storage. Right. So rather than storing your content in S3, you can use storage as a backend and use your CDN on top of storage still as well.
2: And and still get the uh, advantage, take advantage of the price drop of 80%. That's right. And uh, we'll go into Erasure Coding because that sounds interesting. But uh, the other question I wanted to ask about is, so this is a really compelling uh, story, right? So, uh, can you give us some uh, real-world uh, use cases, or you know, of where people are actually using storage?
0: Yeah. Uh, so, I'll, I'll go through. I, I have several, uh, and so feel free to stop at any time and ask. Yeah, and ask yeah. Let's, let's let's
2: just take you know the top your top two, the one yeah, okay. uh, the ones that kind of uh, are pretty big known players.
0: Yeah, so uh, I think I think two use cases that are worth highlighting here are um, backup and disaster recovery, um, especially when uh, the RTO or, or the, the mean time to recovery mm-hmm. uh, is an important objective that they need to meet when they need performant, uh, be able to fetch those backups very quickly. Um, so one of those that might be interesting to talk about is our partnership with IX Systems. Uh, so IX Systems is a producer of uh, hardware uh, all the way from the Prosumer up to the enterprise grade, all the way from you know single drive NAS devices, and they're the company behind the TrueNAS software, which is open source.
2: Right. Okay.
0: So we have a partnership with True uh, with IX Systems um, in their TrueNAS platform, where you're able to pick storage as a replication target for your TrueNAS and be able to do backups. Um, and so that is a thriving and and expanding partnership that we have with them. Um, and we get a lot of good feedback from them as well. Um, obviously, uh, partnerships and or functionality, software that we work with, you know, Acronis, Veeam, Zerto, uh, Arc, Comet, MS3P6, MSP360 are all technology partners and or um, things that work with our software in the backup space.
2: Right. So uh, backup and uh, uh, disaster recovery is, is uh, one of those use cases, like you said, it's kind of like when you need it, you need it uh, immediately and quickly, but uh, you don't need it very often. So that's that's a great uh, use case. And you talked about AIX systems and TrueNAS. And maybe this is where we kind of go into the protocol a little bit. Obviously, the, the first question that co- occurs to me is that, okay, uh, if I have a TrueNAS uh, running on my local home lab and I'm Joe Schmo and I don't have any Bitcoin or any Ether, how do I actually pay Storage for their uh, service?
0: Yeah, so from a customer perspective, uh, what happens is, uh, say you have your TrueNAS, uh, you you go into the you know the integration and you you click a button and you sign up in in a web app uh, for an account, you know, type in your email and password and and sign up, uh, and then at that point you have two options: uh, you can pay with a credit card. Um, and this this service that you're interacting with uh, at the time is called our satellite, uh, which is our metadata coordination and account management layer. Um, and so the satellite is the entity that you uh, give your credit card information to or you can choose to pay in storage token. Uh, at that point, you can get a wallet address and transfer and 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 fill up your balance uh, via storage. And then it's a pay as you go uh, kind of service. so, Um, As you fill up your your account with with usage, and we have a little bit of a free tier so you can get started, Um, then you'll just be billed monthly from then on out uh, based on your payment.
2: Okay. Uh,
0: And the way that you interface with TrueNAS is once you sign up for your account, um, you get S3 compatible. uh, We have our S3 compatible gateway. Uh, And so then you click a create credentials button and and you copy paste in uh, those credentials into your tool uh, and that's how we work with uh, a lot of these other providers as well is it's usually as easy as you know changing the url from amazon to uh to storage and then punching in the the right credentials and and off you go
1: okay i i just want to jump in real quick and I, I thought that that was a great explanation Or you know looking at this from the customer's point of view right somebody who's actually going to be paying for the storage but i also just want to you know go back to a previous question that i asked and, and kind of look at this from the perspective of somebody who's providing the storage right so uh, like for storage as a network like is is the ideal person like somebody like uh, me who has a laptop who has like one terabyte line unutilized or like is it a smaller company that has a server that that they can put on the storage network and you know, that kind of leads me into, you know, how the governance would work in that case, right? Like, would, would somebody with more storage have greater stake in the network, you know, in, in uh, at the end of the day, it's a cryptocurrency, and you know, it's it's a blockchain. So we look at, you know, whether uh, it's decentralized enough, right? So could you actually go into some of those aspects as well?
0: Yeah, yeah. So uh, you're looking at uh, what sometimes we, we think of as the supply side, right? Uh, we've been talking a lot about the demand side. And so, Let's talk a little bit more about the, the supply side of the network, uh, the people providing the storage. Uh, so your, your laptop use case uh, is probably not the best fit for storage, uh, because you often, you know close your laptop lid, have it hibernate, uh, go off network. Um, and so there are some minimum requirements that we recommend uh, for node providers in our documentation: uh, you know, a certain amount of uh, upload and download capacity. Um, a certain amount of bandwidth that you're willing to move through the network uh, at any given time, uh, and one of those is also availability. Uh, so your laptop would not meet the availability requirements uh, to be a storage node. Uh, but if you had, uh, say, a NAS device sitting around your home, that would be a, a, a great candidate. It's it's plugged in, it's wired, it's hooked to the internet, um, and you're able to provide capacity that way. Uh, if you're a, a a company and you have spare uh, space on one of your servers, or you wanted to find out a Easier way to monetize the, the, the servers that you have. That's definitely an option. And then all the way up to uh, uh, those that run data centers. Um, and they, they might build out capacity uh, faster than they have demand for it because they have long lead times. And being able to use storage as a way to cover that gap between when they buy the hardware and when they uh, uh, have customers that fill it is another use case as well. And then there's also a lot of hardware sitting around that is uh, sitting in closets or other things because it's served its life. Um, and a lot of customers, you know, after three, four years will discard hardware uh, because it's past the the useful lifetime uh, for their use case that it was originally intended for. Um, and sometimes discarding that hardware is actually more expensive than just letting it sit in a closet uh, because they have certain um, you know, data wiping guarantees that they need to have or shredding the data as they discard it. And so those are other candidates that tend to bring on uh, old, older hardware that uh, gets repurposed and brought onto the storage network. Uh, and so what, what happens is these nodes, you you start up this node process, which is just a Docker container, and start it. And um, we support Windows, Mac, Linux. I, I believe we have unofficial ports for a few more operating systems as well. And then you start this container. You provide a wallet address uh, that you want to get paid at, uh, and then you go through a, a vetting period where your node is given uh, small amounts of data and then periodically audited to make sure that it's performing well, right? That the, the you're returning the data that you're supposed to, you're storing the data that you need to be doing. Uh, and then once this vetting period passes, uh, which varies based on the load and demand on the network, but I think on average is probably around two weeks, uh, you can get your node vetted. Um, then you are a full participant in the network. Uh, and then there's a few more. I think you're probably mostly interested around the incentives and other things around there. There's a few more things that we do. Uh, we have what is what could be probably referred to as a reverse staking mechanism. It's not a, a full-blown staking where you put money up front. Uh, but what we do is we withhold a percentage of your earnings uh, over time until enough of it is held that you have a significant stake that you are incentivized to keep your node online and not just pull the plug on it overnight. Um, and so this held amount uh, builds up over time um, and it allows for people to easily join the network without having to put up a lot of um, money up front in order to get their nodes online. Um, and so that's the reverse staking mechanism. So as your node is online over time, it will slowly fill up with more and more data. Uh, each month you will get payouts uh, to your wallet address uh, based on the amount of data that you've stored and the amount of egress that you've done um and the amount of repair work that you've had to do uh so those are your elements and there's a there's a little dashboard that you can manage all of this and see all of this as a node operator um and and that's that's basically the case in the um uh how how it works as a node operator
2: so so from a business model perspective if i were to kind of say okay this thing, uh, I got a small NAS that has been running for, uh, I don't know, six months, and I've been making a little bit of uh, money on it. Do you think it'll be, it, uh, do you think I, it's it's feasible for me to then come back and say, hey, can I maybe do something more professional, set up a server and a, you know, a dedicated line and earn some real coin? Uh, is that is that something that is, Encouraged is are they kind of like tiers on uh, storage that you kind of provide so you can say okay here's your entry level and if you meet a higher set of requirements you get uh, better revenue or whatever.
0: Yeah, so the uh, revenue is 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 tied to usage. Uh, it's the same as what, where we, when when storage gets revenue, right? We we charge okay. customers based on uh, how much data they store and how much is paid out. So as you scale up your revenues will increase according to how much data you're storing and how much egress you're doing.
2: So th- there is no quality assessment or audit or something that kind of shows that, okay, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a better storage provider or in the top 10, or is there no kind of gaming incentive mechanism around that?
0: Uh, so I, the, when, I, when I spoke about the erasure coding and the uploading, the downloading of data uh, and how we pick the most performant nodes, uh-huh. And, and so the more performant nodes or the, the ones that are better connected or the ones that are closer to where data is actually needed and demand is happening are the nodes that are going to be, uh, they're, they're not incentivized more in the fact that there's different payout structures. It's just the fact that they will accumulate and be able to store more data quicker uh, because they're better performing. Uh, and then there are ongoing audits um, that use a probabilistic model to make sure that you're behaving well and and doing everything that you should be doing as a node operator.
2: Cool. So uh, you mentioned something about repair. Can you expand a little bit about that? What, What is the repair aspect that you were talking about?
0: Yeah, so uh, when, when your client uploads data to our network, uh, what, what happens is it reaches out to our satellite service and it gets back a list of candidate nodes for it to upload to. Uh, at this time, it's, I think it's 110. Uh, so 110 nodes that your client is able to go and do the upload to. So it goes and does the upload. And uh, the, you know, the fastest nodes win, I think the fastest um, 70 or 80 in this case are the, are the, are the winners. And then that, that metadata, the, the, the data about where your object is stored is uploaded back to the satellite. And it's stored in a decentralized database, actually, um, uh, for, for where that data is stored. And so the satellite is the service that's in charge of maintaining a reputation, if, if you will, with each node. Um, And so there's three satellites that we operate. Uh, There's another satellite that's operating um, in a few universities that also operate some satellites. Um, And so the satellite will keep track of which nodes are storing the pieces of the data. And at any time a a single object drops below the required number of pieces, uh, the repair threshold, it will go and re-download that object and reassemble and make sure that it uploads enough uh, parity pieces into the network to make sure that that data is safe and secure.
2: Okay, so that's that's clear. So that uh, that actually uh is a good kind of leeway into uh, talking about a little bit about erasure coding. I know it's a pretty technical topic, uh, but uh, could you kind of at a high level explain kind of like what is uh erasure coding? How uh, is it is it kind of Similar to uh, adding a parity bit uh, or a checksum to a particular block to make sure that okay, if there is any uh, damage to the block, uh, it's in, uh, apparent. Or is this something more elaborate than that?
0: Uh, no, they. I, I checksums are a form of uh, a simple form of of erasure coding. I think you can think of them that way. Uh-huh. Um, but I think I think uh, Reed Solomon in particular is a class of erasure codes that has a number of unique qualities that that make it good for this um i'm I, you'll have to excuse me and uh, for the mathematicians that that might be listening if i if I get the nomenclature wrong yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, in the in the field. Uh, I, but uh, the erasure coding of Reed Solomon is perfect in that it, you get the exact amount of you you can't get more durability out of an erasure code than you can with Reed Solomon. Uh, it belongs to a special class of erasure codes, and the 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 exact name of these erasure codes slips me. Uh, so it's 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 proven uh, that that is that sort of class. And erasure codes are common in CD-ROMs. Um, uh, they, they store extra parity. Um, there's often parity in, in um, your cell phones uh, in the transmission of your cell phones of digital data um, right. and all the things like that. Um, and so the the most basic and simple way to understand how erasure codes work uh, that I can explain uh, without a whiteboard <laughs> in front of me mm-hmm. uh, to help draw this uh, is, is if you can think back to your linear algebra days mm-hmm. uh, of when you were able to draw a, a line with two points. Um and, and those two points uniquely describe that line. Right. All right. All you need are two lines to describe that point. And so I, if you can remember in linear algebra, if you, if you have a polynomial that's larger than just the, the single polynomial, if you go up to another polynomial, you then need three lines to describe that curve. Th-
2: three points to describe that. Three
0: points. Yes. Yes. Sorry. Yes. Three points. You need three points to then describe that second order polynomial curve. Yes. Uh, And so uh, what erasure coding is, is if you just keep thinking about that. And so think about that curve. uh, Let's say it has a U shape right now and you've got a point on the left, on the bottom and then the right. Um, If you add more points to that curve, Mm -hmm. you are doing erasure coding. And so that's to add two more points, right? Say one in the bottom left and one in the bottom right. So now I have five points along that curve. And if I take those points and store them, I can get back any three of those points and I am able to reproduce the curve from any three of those points that I had. And if, if we were drawing this on a whiteboard, it would be easy to, it would be easy to show how this works. Yeah. Um, and so that's erasure coding in a nutshell. Uh, but basically what happens is you just do higher and higher order polynomials um, in order to get the, the number of points and, the, and you just oversample, you just keep oversampling. You basically just scale up that simple process. But if you just think about it, of that simple linear algebra process, uh, that's exactly what it is. Um, the only difference is uh, somebody found an, ap- uh, an optimization in order to calculate these faster, um, which is called Galois fields. Um, which is a mathematician that figured out, you know, faster ways to compute those extra points on the line. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, but I think uh, it also can be any three points, right? It needs to be three points in particular parts of the curve uh, in order to be, you can't have like three points that are right next to each other. Uh, It may not describe the curve perfectly. Uh, You'd need it at strategic parts of the curve, uh, I would imagine. This particular Uh method also kind of reminds me, uh, this was done earlier as well. If I'm not mistaken, I think this is something that uh, early P2P network uh, protocols uh, used to do, right? I think BitTorrent also had something like this where the the way it calculated the blocks would be uh, in such a way that you could recreate the file without having all the blocks. Or or maybe I'm misremembering, maybe it was Kdemli, I'm not sure, one of the two. But
1: yeah, okay. So that's that's a great introduction, I think, uh, into uh, erasure coding. So this is basically the mechanism through which, on your network, you can store uh, a file without having to maintain multiple copies of it. Uh, is that correct?
0: Mm-hmm. Erasure coding is is pretty common in the storage world. You know, RAID RAID uses erasure codes. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And so you can kind of think of this as like a RAID 100 or a RAID 500, right? Uh, where we've we've taken RAID and and Use the codes to apply it and expand it. Yep.
2: All right. Cool. And uh, this is done. Is this done after the encryption of the data, or is it done before the encryption of the file data?
0: Uh, yeah. So the uh, it's done after the encryption. Um, and so what that means is, when we do the repair of the data, we don't need access to your data. We don't need knowledge of the contents of your data in order to do repair work.
2: Okay. So when uh, so so basically. Uh, at what point does the encryption happen? So again, going back to the TrueNAS example, right? Uh, when I put in that key to store StoreJ uh, with a credential key to store J, does the TrueNAS software locally first encrypt the file and then send it over? Or is, there a, is this part of the satellite service's job to encrypt the data and do the ratio coding? How, how does that work?
0: I, so... With every um, technical partner, they, they usually have their own encryption options as well. And TrueNAS True might have that as well. I, bu- I believe they do. but So let's just focus on the storage side because uh, obviously yeah, okay. you can pick to encrypt it before you even send it to storage. But the interesting thing is what we do. Um, so uh, there's two ways to access our network. Um, one is through our uplink uh, SDKs and or command line. Uh, the uplink is our native protocol uh, the one that's able to, you know, talk to our satellites, go and talk to the hundred nodes or thousands of nodes if need be to store and upload your content um, and, and kind of speaks to the storage protocol under the hood. And that SDK is where the encryption happens. So that's client side before the data ever leaves your computer if you're using Uplink. Now, uh, a lot of our customers are used to using the S3 protocol. Mm-hmm. Um, and the S3 protocol does not support end-to-end encryption. Uh, there's there's actually a very limited end-to-end encryption uh, support in Amazon, but even their own SDKs don't support the end-to-end encryption in the same way for the on the Amazon side. But at storage, we have built it in uh, by default and made it easy to use. Um, so on the S3 case, what happens is when you go to generate your S3 credentials, uh, you do so uh, interfacing with an uplink or via our browser. And what it does is it takes your needed access grant, the necessary encryption material and authorization material, and then it goes and stores that material with using the S3 secret key as the encryption key in what we call our edge services. So, what the unique thing about that is is we don't have access to your encryption key uh, in the edge service until the moment that you use your s3 access credentials to actually download or or upload the content and then it passes through our edge services where they run our native protocol and are able to do the encryption and the erasure coding and or decoding um, and then immediately they do the transaction for the um, upload or download, and then they immediately forget the key um, until the next time that you need to go and do the upload or download. Um, and so that's, that's I, it's similar but different uh, to how the central cloud providers do it.
2: So, so uh, when you say uh, our edge services, is this kind of a service provided by StoreJ, or is this uh, one of the uh, is there another layer of uh, people who are uh, giving this service uh, in a decentralized manner.
0: Yeah. So the, there's three peer classes, and thank you for pulling those out because I didn't <laughs> I didn't say them up front. Uh, satellites is one. Uh, the the storage nodes themselves are another. Uh-huh. Um, and then edge services is, is is another. Um, and so there's nothing uh, stopping anybody from going and running a gateway service today uh, that would go and talk to the storage satellites and serve up and and give data. Um right now the 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 main ways to use it are through the storage provided ones. Um and we run um we run I, I'm I'm gonna give the wrong number off the top of the head, uh, but we run probably seven different or eight different storage uh, our edge locations around the globe today. Um, and that's uh-huh. expanding very quickly. Um and so yeah, the most people tend to use the storage provided ones for convenience and simplicity. Uh, but you can download, if you, if you want the simplicity of using the S3 API, but you don't want to use the storage provided ones, you can simply download this gateway service and run it alongside your application. Um, so, so going back to the TrueNAS example, uh, it, you, you could download the Go binary for the gateway and load it onto your TrueNAS and uh, interface okay. with that instead. Yes.
2: So it's literally a Go binary application running uh, that, that you can just put on a on a machine and uh, run it yourself.
0: Yep. It just speaks the S3 protocol on one end and speaks the storage native protocol on the other. Right. And so it, it basically just translates it.
2: Okay. And uh, do you need it to be, is it signed or do you need it to be, you obviously validate based on the certificate, uh, sorry, the credentials provided by the, Edge server that okay this is from a valid user of Storage.
0: Yes, so the the edge server when you choose to interface with an edge server, you go through that process which I said of of giving it an access grant that's an encrypted with a, a specific key. That's the process at which it authenticates you with the satellite that that authentication material.
2: Right, and you talked about the uh, the storage provider peer. And there is one more peer left, I think, which is a satellite. So could you kind of uh, talk a little bit about uh, the satellites? Uh, for From what I could understand, so far, it looks like it's the main coordination piece uh, that manages uh, the interface between the end user and, uh, sorry, the demand and the supply. Uh, so how, how does that work? Is there is that, again, something that is so decentralized or run by storage or uh, do you have like multiple people building that
0: yeah, so the all of the components that I've talked about are open source um, and all of them can be downloaded and deployed and modified um so there's three satellites being operated by storage today uh well uh, three production satellites I should say uh, University of Edinburgh is starting up their own satellite um for their for their use and um it's just a matter of when you run the satellite, you bring the customers as well. Right. Um, so on the storage node side, on the storage node side, you get to pick which satellites you choose to work with. Um, and so the storage nodes will work with our three satellites independently. Um, and and the settlement layer is the blockchain for the payments.
2: Right. And... Uh the fact that you support credit cards or something is again a function of the capabilities of a particular satellite correct right
0: you could start a satellite and say i don't choose to take credit card payments okay um yeah so the i, I think i think it's worth mentioning a little bit about the architecture decision of a satellite um is it's because you know we're we're doing on on you know on a daily basis probably uh, 15,000 operations per second um, mm-hmm. uh, of uploads and downloads, a- especially at the time when we were building storage, There, there's no blockchain that can handle that throughput. Um, and especially that throughput, it's growing, um, you know, month over month and year over year uh, to the point where you wouldn't want to store all of those uploads and downloads on a blockchain anyway. So we've built the with the design goal in mind that this would scale to tens, if not hundreds, if not a million operations per second someday, uh, the satellite service was uh, was the goal and the the design that was able to accomplish that.
2: Right. Uh, you said this is an open source. Uh, all of this uh, uh, code is open source. Uh, can you give us an overview? What is the tech stack like? Is it? Uh, are we talking Go, Python? Uh, is it? Is there a, back- a back-end database that we need to set up? What what would it take for you know a, uh, ordinary software developer, like maybe me, to come up and say, OK, I want to try out the stored stuff. Uh, what do I need on my machine to set it up?
0: Yeah, so we have a number of ways to deploy it. Uh, the easiest way is we have a storage up tool, uh, which mm-hmm. is just Docker Compose, uh, and you say storage up, and it spins up all of the components. But that's not necessarily a production-ready deployment, right? Um, but that's the easiest Good. way to get started. Uh, if you do that, it will start uh, you know, dozens of nodes on your machine. It will start all the satellite components that you need. It will start the edge components. And you'll be able to interface with it directly from there on your own independent satellite. As far as the satellite's concerned, we support Postgres as a back-end database and also CockroachDB um, as a back-end database. Uh, both of which are open source. So
2: any Postgres via contact-compatible database would work? Yeah.
0: Um, And so that's for the metadata layer. I I don't think there's any other dependencies. Uh, You know, there might be a Redis and a few other components that need to be installed. Typically, uh, you know, we deploy and run this on a Kubernetes cluster. Okay. Um, But the storage up binary handles all of those, and it's just Docker container. Right. Um. And then the stack is uh, almost entirely Golang. Okay. Um, so each of these are also Go binaries that you can download and install and run. Um, and
2: uh, Do you have a custom uh, networking protocol or is it all over TCP?
0: Great question. Uh, we actually built our own replacement for gRPC nice. uh, okay. using protocol buffers. Uh, we call it drpc, okay. uh, derpc, I uh, like to say. Uh, and it's basically a simplification of gRPC that runs over HTTP mm-hmm. um, without some of the other things. Uh, and, I, and I believe it also supports other protocols as well in, in its own custom one. Uh, so a lot of the uplink to satellite communication is using gRPC. Um, the edge services obviously provide the S3 API. Um, and then there are some administrative interfaces that use REST uh, on the console. Um, The console is our web interface, um, and that's written in Vue using mostly either the S3 API or REST API calls to the satellite.
2: Great. Uh, So just uh, to kind of take this forward now, uh, I think we've got a great overview of uh, the protocol and the tech stack uh, and probably, you know, even how to uh, download it and start working with it. Uh, let's have a look at some of the challenges and opportunities that you see, right? So uh, with the storage uh, protocol, obviously you're focused on the uh, storage space. So so what are some of the challenges and opportunities that you see in the storage space moving forward uh, that you think that storage is uh, uniquely placed to address?
0: Yeah, so I think one of the biggest challenges uh going forward is really the explosion of data that's happening and i i'm going to quote something off the top of my head and hopefully not regret it uh you know but there's uh, the the storage forecasts are going up to you know 170 zettabytes of data that's going to be needed to be created and stored over the next you know seven years or something um and so that just a massive data explosion Um, And so I think the big challenge in the data storage industry is how are we going to uh, address those storage needs in an economical and an environmentally uh, sound way? Because building and manufacturing that many storage drives and data centers to house all of them and then running all of the power uh, to build and cool them uh, is going to be very expensive. It's going to be very costly, not only in dollars, but on, on the environment around us as well. Um, And then the uh, increasing need to have your data local is something else that I think is very challenging uh, for the market in general. Uh, Of of we are increasingly becoming a global world where uh, you know even our workplace uh, at storage we have sixty five employees across um, nineteen different countries uh, where the the workforce is becoming increasingly global and distributed. Uh, Your data needs to become more global and distributed as well. And be able to have that performance local uh, and be stored global so I think those are two kind of key challenges for the industry as well um, and then the other one obviously is that is the privacy component uh, which I think store J, storage is uniquely positioned to uh, meet all of these needs going forward um, and so specifically items on the roadmap f- um, for us uh, as a company that we'd like to you know kind of focus on and address is, is really adoption as well. Uh, we, we really strive to make our system as easy to use um, in easy and easy to use decentralized storage. Uh, and that's why we talk about how you, know, you can sign up for it like any other service that you want to sign up for. You can pay for it with a credit card like any other service that you're used to doing because that's what traditional Web2 businesses are used to doing today. Um, and in order to get that bigger and, and larger adoption of decentralized storage in particular, uh, the, we need to learn to meet them where they are so that we can then show them the way to better uh, opportunities as well. And we do see that a lot with storage is people get started with our edge services, which you could kind of think of as that web 2.5. And what ends up happening is they, they use that, like it, uh, store it for a while, and then they come back to us and like, well, how can we get that last bit more performance? Or how can we you know, get that end-to-end encryption down to exactly how we want it? Uh, and then we're able to introduce them to our native protocol, which is a little bit harder to get started on and, use, and using, um, but is able to provide those benefits that they want. And then they get the full benefits of decentralization as well. Um, and so uh, really on a roadmap is, again, making it even easier uh, to use our product and sign up and use, while at the same time progressing on our decentralization, our performance, um, and pushing forward the privacy. and um, and decentralization goals as well.
2: A, a couple of points on uh, that I wanted to kind of uh, ask. So you, you you brought up the point about the large amount of data that we that we expect, right? You said something about 150 uh, zettabytes. One thought that occurred to me is that, well, do you have any? Uh, do we have any uh, idea of how much of that would be actually data that? would be suitable for storage use case, which is not uh, real-time streaming, right? Because one of the things when I I look at storage in general, uh, I see, you know, the whole thing around virtual reality games and all of these kind of 3D assets and uh, three-dimensional immersive experiences as being like the next large big thing, right? So we originally had Uh, mp3s then we had uh, dvd players and blu-ray discs and then now we have these huge files for 4k video and 8k video and uh, now the next thing would be immersive video which i think uh, is kind of like if you look at is is one of the larger pieces of uh data that we start storing right so uh, most of those basically are things people generally like to stream Uh, you know you don't uh, necessarily need to have the entire thing on your local hard drive if you've got a good enough uh, network connection you want to stream from a server Uh, so uh, how how do you think in those kind of scenarios would, would that kind of map to your roadmap goal of improving performance so that we can you can kind of address those kind of use cases
0: yeah, so uh, actually earlier this year we actually focused a lot more on performance uh to the point where <laughs> and we never we never circled back to that second uh market use case that we we've seen uh, great adoption with uh, which is actually uh media post production um media streaming and distribution is also a large use case. Um so some of the partners that we have in media post production and, and l- let me explain a little bit about media post production. So in the movie creation world, uh, you, you have your pre-production, your production, and then post-production workflows. Uh, so you have your people on site shooting uh, film, on, mostly digital these days, you know, when you're creating a movie, and it's going straight onto the cameras, onto the drives that are there. And then they take that day's worth of photos and shoots, uh, and they, at, at, at the end of the day, they usually try to upload it to some places nearby, uh, which is where their editors are working, Um, And then they they do a lot of editing, a lot of of reviewing uh, throughout the night so that the next day they know what they need to go shoot and what they need to go focus on. Um, And then all of this content gets, um, once the shoot's done, all the editing is done, all of this video needs to be uploaded and stored and kept around for a long time uh, because often they need to go back and do remixes and other things as well. Right. Um, And so... Part of this whole production workflow, uh, GB Labs is kind of a big uh, partner there. We also partner with Adobe Premiere. Livepeer is another one in the Web3 space that we also work with uh, in the kind of media streaming and Um, post-production. And uh, I think those are probably some that we we are worth mentioning. Uh, Metaspace uh, actually is a good partner of ours that does volumetric 360 degree uh, capture Mm -hmm. uh, for movies. Um, and so they're one of our customers. And so this concept that we have storage that costs the same dollars per terabyte is Glacier. Glacier is $4 a terabyte and we're $4 a terabyte. Um, and, it, and our egress costs are so much lower and we're immediate, uh, immediately available. Glacier, you have to wait 15 to a, minutes to an hour to get your content back, whereas storage is immediately available. Uh, it just really resonates with these folks uh, because they're able to store a shoot and store it forever at a price point that they want. And then as soon as they need to edit it, uh, or they, they might need to pull it back, they don't have to worry about a complicated workflow. They can just immediately access it and, and go right away to do it. So definitely, we're, we're definitely not just focused on slow and archival use cases. Performance and immediate availability is actually one of our, our primary use cases.
2: Right, okay, cool. So uh, apologies, I think I, I misunderstood that. And thanks for clarifying that. So, okay, so then that, that kind of uh, dovetails well with uh, what you talked about for the roadmap and and the opportunities for Storage. W- what about Web3 as a whole? Uh, there is now uh, Web 2.5. There are, there are all these terms that are being thrown around, right? And depending on who you ask, Web3 could be something around virtual reality. It could be something around decentralized uh, social media like uh, Mastodon. Uh, and it could be blockchain uh, being used everywhere uh, depending on who you ask what what are your thoughts about the larger web3 picture
0: yeah so i think one of the the larger web3 things that uh, people are starting to talk about um and and we're starting to understand how web3 plays into this is is kind of the ai uh, AI space and, and take off of, of, of all of that mm-hmm. uh, because what I think is really interesting in the AI space, uh, I just read a, a article that came out recently, a paper about uh, AI poisoning um, where, where they're able to manipulate an image in such a way that when you look at it as a human I, I, the dog picture still looks like a dog, but you have manipulated the image such that when an AI is trained on it it actually thinks it, it gets, it pulls out the features of a cat. And, the, and this paper was presenting that with only 100 or 300 samples put out there on the internet to poison an AI model, it completely ruins uh, the output of stable diffusion. When you ask for a dog, you'll get a cat. And when you ask for a car, you'll get a cow. And so I think one of the things we're not talking about enough in this space is the data integrity and basically origin of the content for ai mm-hmm. of of which i think a uh, blockchain can play a key function in terms of uh, you know uh, testing as to having
2: pr- a provenance
0: yeah and i think ai is going to be another one of those big data explosions um and in not only in in needing to have uh, validity to the uh, training sets uh, so so for example um the big um Training set that was used for Stable Diffusion. Uh, I actually went and and looked into downloading all of it. Um, uh, only you know just above fifty percent of the original content that went into training the original di- Stable Diffusion is actually online uh, because the the data just gone offline. They scraped the internet; it's not there anymore. So if somebody wanted to go and reproduce Stable Diffusion today, they couldn't uh, because the data sets are just so huge. And so I think having cheap, readily available storage for AI combined with blockchain and the ability to attest to the validity of that data is something that I think we all need to be thinking about.
2: I echo that, and uh, there's also the whole legal aspect of it also, right? Because you can see all the uh, – uh, there are so many class action lawsuits now going up against OpenAI and Llama uh, because uh, they uh, apparently – uh, uploaded uh copyrighted books without asking for permission uh because just one of the uh data sets that they were using had uh these copyrighted and uh books and you can you can almost see the uh <laughs> the counter argument being well I did not know because uh, it's impossible for me to figure out from this huge data set what's legitimate and what's not. And, you know, the blockchain uh, provenance solution kind of fits in really well over there uh, as well, I think. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think that's going to be uh, an interesting juxtaposition of new technologies being uh, used for the right use cases.
0: Yeah. And and stable diffusion, I mentioned, uh, another reason why nobody's hosting that data set, you know, the original authors or anybody subsequently didn't go scrape and host that data set for others to download is because, you know, perhaps, and, and I'm not a lawyer and I'm not able to offer uh, exact <laughs> uh, opinions on the legality of something, you know, but perhaps, you know, downloading and scraping it is fair use, but again, hosting the content isn't so then everybody who wants to work with stable diffusion and or uh, improve upon it needs to have their own copy of all of this data uh, because that you know, may, may fall under fair use and they're able to do that. But they can't go then share that data set with other people because then they fell outside the bounds of fair use. Exactly. I, and so this is an interesting problem again where bringing down the cost of storage and getting our message out there of like, hey, you can store and, and train all these big data sets on storage because the cost is so much lower. Uh, it's just going to be able to accelerate the stability uh, uh ironically enough of these uh, of uh, of these AI algorithms because people will for this lower cost be able to store all the original origin content uh, that they need to reproduce the algorithms uh, uh, to reproduce the bottles that they're trying to train. um so yeah, it's definitely an interesting uh, component of this as well as is is how are they going to source this data and and keep it around and find ways for other people to be able to store and source that data so that they can also work on the models.
2: Awesome. Uh, The time has flown by. I think we should uh, bring the ship uh, into port, as they say. I think I just wanted to uh, conclude by saying, Jacob, uh, that was a scintillating conversation. I really enjoyed it. And uh, thank you for uh, spending the time with
1: us. And uh, before we end, Jacob, uh, I just want to let you know that, you know, we'll be sure to include the link to the storage website uh, in the show notes. But if there's anything you want to tell the audience, you know, where to find more information, how to get involved, any announcements or anything else, uh, now would be a good time.
0: Yeah, I, I just want to thank you for having me. And it was uh, my pleasure to be able to be here and talk about uh, items in the space that are important to us and be able to have the discussion. Um, and obviously you can uh, find out more on our website and visit it at storage.io. And to be able to sign up, uh, you can get it started for free and be able to try all of these things that we've talked about.
1: So yeah, uh, really great to have had the opportunity to talk to you, Jacob. And uh, thanks again for your time. And uh, we hope to talk to you again in the future as uh, storage grows and evolves. Thank you. Once again, that was Jacob Willoughby from Storage. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Also, you can learn more about us at bcdialogs.com. Thanks again for joining. See you next time.